Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. you to open up your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. And while you're doing that, uh, just point you to the, um, the bulletin. There's some important announcements there for things coming up like art camp that starts on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. Be praying for that this week. Next Saturday is the Walk for Life. Be praying for that and consider joining us there. Uh, right, right here, the information's in your bulletin. Uh, the other thing I want to just remind you of really briefly is that there's a lot of cleanup and remodeling projects going on. Uh, next week, we're getting new carpet back in the office area and so a lot of things happening in a short bit of time here all to better uh, resource this facility for ministry. Um, It's an incredible privilege that we have though as a community of faith to open up God's word and to open up the story of Ruth, a real story of brokenness and brokenness though being redeemed by the mighty hand of God and whose wings this group of people come under in this period in um, Israel history. And so Ruth chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Uh, If you've been with us for Ruth 1 and 2, you know kind of a bit of the story. We're going to jump right into the text, and I'm just going to ask you to remain seated. We're going to read the whole chapter together, Uh, but just recognize, uh, one of my pastor friends likes to say, likes to say this way, remain seated, but stand in your hearts, because we're reading God's word, and such incredible gift to us to read the scriptures. So I invite you to remain seated and read with me, please, here. Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek a state of rest for you, that it may be well with you? And now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose young woman you were? Behold, he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight. And so you shall wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and you shall go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Let it be that when he lies down, you shall know the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you should do. She said to her, all that you say, I will do. So she, this is Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. And Boaz ate and drank and his heart was merry and he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Verse 8, then it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and he bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your maidservant, so spread your wing over your maidservant, for you are a kinsman redeemer. Then he, this is Boaz, said, may you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. You have shown your last loving kindness to be much better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. So now, my daughter, do not fear all that you say I will do for you. For all my people within the gates of the city know that you are a woman of excellence. But now it is true that I am a kinsman redeemer. However, there is a kinsman redeemer closer than I. Stay this night, and it will be in the morning that if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. 
But if he does not desire to redeem you, then I will redeem you as Yahweh lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and placed it on her. Then she went into the city. Then she came to her mother-in-law and she said, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty. Then she said, sit then, my daughter, until you know how the matter falls into place. For the man will not quiet until he has finished the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father and our King, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for um, the messages of grace and the messages of hope and the messages of redemption that lie within these words. And now, God, I I pray that you would uh, help us to see, give us eyes to see, as your word says, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to set upon your truth. That is why you have brought us here to learn in order to live and then to go share the incredible working and the incredible story of our great Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, if this is the first time you have joined us in this sermon series on Ruth, you're going like, what is going on? If you haven't read up to this point, you're like, how do we end up with a lady going to a winnowing floor in the middle of the night to talk to a guy and basically solicit an invitation to marriage, right? That's what's going on in our story today, which is kind of a crazy story, and we'll look at it through our time together this morning. But as we have just read, we've experienced thus far in chapter 1 and chapter 2 the story of a family who left Israel to go to the land of Moab because there was a famine. And they went there to go look for food, but really they also went there because they were seeking to find spiritual rest in someone or something other than the God of Israel. So they come back, and Naomi, who is the mother-in-law, she comes back with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And um, they come back to the land. They hear that there's food there. And Ruth makes this very, very amazing statement. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And they make this physical journey back to the land of Israel, to the city of Bethlehem. But it's not just a physical journey. It's also a spiritual journey of going back underneath the wings of Yahweh in the place where God had called his people Israel to rest. So we find ourselves here in chapter 2 and then in chapter 3 with two widows walking through really, really difficult times. Not much to their name in terms of wealth. In fact, we found last week that Ruth goes to the barley fields to glean, which was hard work, um, but it was also providential in that she went to the field of a man named Boaz. Boaz is the man in our story today. His name means in who, uh, how's it go? In him is strength is what his name means. And Boaz looks at her, and he has heard about her. He actually inquires about her. Who is this lady? And this is a lady who has worked 
hard to feed her and her mother-in-law, who is taking amazing care of her mother-in-law. And Boaz says to his uh, fellow harvesters during this barley harvest, after this long famine, don't just let her glean the small things on the field. Let her gather larger sheaves. And she goes home with so much food and she stays gleaning day after day because Boaz says, come back to the field, come back to the field. What he's doing is he's caring for the poor and the widow in his midst. And what that tells us about Boaz is that he is a man of the text and he is a man of God's word because God has said, leave the corners of your fields. Honor me by trusting me with the, even the very first crops that come in. Make sure that the people who are poor around you have food to eat. So we enter into chapter three here and we've known or we've picked up a couple of things. We know Boaz's character. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of valor. Um, the phrase in Hebrew is gibor chayil, and it's this mighty man of strength. It can refer to someone who has military prowess or has economic prowess. It can also refer to someone who has spiritual, um, spiritual strength. And what we find out from how Boaz interacts with people is that he's a man who cares about what God cares about. But we also find out that, that um, Ruth, who is called a Moabitess so many times in this story, is a, is a person who is a proselyte. She has left the gods of her country, lowercase g, gods of her country, and she's come under the refuge or under the wings of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so she's learning what it means to trust him and, and as we open this story, um, we, we can see a bit of a glimmer of Naomi turning. Um, Naomi starts off the story, she goes away with a full family, she comes back with no sons because her sons died, her husband died, she comes back with one daughter-in-law. And as she comes back in, she tells the people of Bethlehem where they, where they came from, uh, they say, is this Naomi, whose name means pleasant? And she says, don't call me Naomi, don't call me pleasant. My name should be called Mara, which means bitter. And the story of Naomi is a story of walking through the loss of what it means to lose everything you thought you knew and everything that you thought you had forever. All the hopes of the future dashed when she lost a husband and she lost a son and she lost another son. Because to not have a husband or to not have sons in this culture was to be left um, very vulnerable in the context, in the cultural context that's going on here. But notice, in the beginning of our chapter today, we're given a bit of Naomi's story. And it kind of ends in Ruth chapter 2, verse 22, where it says, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's good, my daughter, that you don't go out with his young women so that others don't oppress you in another field. She's saying, go glean where Boaz has said you may come glean here because you'll be taken care of. We see Naomi saying, oh man, I care about you, daughter-in-law. And in chapter 3, verse 1, Naomi says to her, My daughter, shall I not seek a state of rest for you that it may be well with you? Naomi's hatching a, a plan, as it were, here. And he's, she is going to instruct Ruth, her daughter-in-law. She's going to instruct her 
to go have a conversation with Boaz. Now, in the first century, or not in the first century, but back in the, this time period, the time period of the judges, this would have been a little bit like, you're going to do what? <laughs> yeah, in, in a very patriarchal society, you wouldn't necessarily expect uh, a, a young lady coming up to perhaps an older man, is most likely Boaz's state here, um, and having a conversation with him in the middle of the night and basically saying, will you you take me and place me under your wing. In other words, will you marry me? And then leaving it there. But notice how Naomi tells her to have this conversation. She's wanting to seek a state of rest for her. And she says, now, now Boaz is not, and now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose woman you were? Behold, he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight. And she gives her a couple of instructions here. Number one, verse three. Um, so you shall wash yourself and anoint yourself and you shall put on your best clothes. And with that state, you're going to go down to the threshing floor, but don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And then you're going to have a conversation with him. And you're going to see where that conversation leads. So, so let's talk about that. Um, the conversation that they're going to have is going to take place. Well, here, I'll give you a couple of photos so that we can kind of see this. Uh, in the Iron Age, the approximate um, size of Bethlehem is in that circle right there. You can see how much it's sprawled out over the course of time. The Church of the Nativity is the, the place where they celebrate Jesus' birth. Um, and we are kind of invited into seeing what some of this may have looked like back then. Um, a field of harvesters is gathered here, and we're gathering at a threshing floor. A threshing floor was a very public place that many people gathered during harvest season. Um, many people would come to this one place and they'd have different places where they might thresh their wheat. Here's another photo of several people threshing at different parts. The reason why it's a shared place is because a threshing floor is often elevated. What, what you end up doing is, like in this picture, you can see that there's some sort of grain, whether that's hay or whether that's barley or whether that's wheat. They go ahead and they have these animals here that drag a sledge. If you can kind of see that up in the upper right-hand corner of your screen, there's a sledge that they're dragging. That's going over the kernels of wheat, over the stalks, and as that comes off, then the, the kernel remains intact of wheat, but all the extra stuff that are around it start falling off. And they want to separate this out, right? Like I said last week, many of us, we might just go to the store and buy a bag of flour. That doesn't exist in the same way in the first century. You grind your own wheat, you harvest your own grain, you work as a community in order to be able to do this. And Boaz is a landowner who has a lot of um, resources at his disposal. So he actually has workers up here doing this. But think of this um, as, a, as a huge season of time where they're going up to this high place and they end up winnowing. So here's a photo of a, of a threshing floor back in the early 20th century. And you can see that there's probably about 30 people on this screen doing various jobs and they're gathering around. And one of the things that they would do with, with winnowing is that they would throw it up into the air. So you can kind of see that there's a dust going on and they have these, these pitchforks. They would take the grain and they would throw it up into the air and they'd be on this high place where, where they're winnowing because in the nighttime, in the evening time going into the nighttime, a gentle breeze would come 
over the area most often, and it would carry away the chaff, all the super light parts, and it would let the kernels of wheat or barley fall to the ground. So what's going on here is a big agricultural work day, and it has to be done during certain times of the day. Otherwise, the wind gets too much, and it, you, you end up blowing away some of the wheat, and you want to save that, or the barley, you want to save that. But there's all this activity going on all the time on the threshing floor, and for Boaz, we find that he is sleeping by a pile of grain outside. And you're like, why is he sleeping? Is he like lazy, doesn't want to go home or something like that? No. Um, Boaz is securing his resources. He's basically guarding his bank account because this was not just um, wheat for his own consumption or his household's consumption. Sometimes this wheat would then be sold. And so he's there at night, both because they finished late, but also he wants to make sure that as they go, um, as they go through this process, no one comes along to steal grain because that would be kind of a bummer. <laughs> It'd be really a big bummer to go through all this work and then just let all the grain get stolen by robbers who are hungry or something like that. So Boaz finds himself there. At the end of the night, they finish up their work. They have a feast. And it's after this feast, gathering around a common pot here, um, that then Boaz goes to find a place in order to lay down. Because he was a landowner, um, he was probably separate from many of his other servants. And so he's, he's gathered, uh, they've gathered for meal, they've gathered for work. Now he goes off to sleep over here by his pile of grain. Other people go to sleep other places. And it's at this point in time that Naomi says to Ruth, when everyone has eaten, when their stomachs are full, everyone's in a good mood, the work has been done for the day, Boaz goes to lie down, go over and have a conversation with him. And, and she actually says, let it be in verse 4, when he lies down, you shall know the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down, and then he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say, I will do. So it says in verse um, 6 here that Ruth goes down to the threshing floor and she did all that her mother-in-law commanded her to do. Now, this is kind of a crazy account. Uh, because the language that's going on in Hebrew can be highly suggestive. And so you have some commentators that suggest that, um, that there could be some salacious things going on in this narrative. Because of the Hebrew that's working there and in, in, in how you translate it. Uh, there's also many translators who, who wouldn't agree with that. So just know that if you go to study this, you're going to get sides of this. Looking at it and knowing the character of Boaz, knowing the character of Ruth, and just the plain reading of this text, I think here's what happens. Boaz goes over, he lays down, he's got a cloak or a blanket or something on him. Ruth knows where he laid down, so after it gets dark, she's going to go to have a private conversation with him in a public place. Right? She's not going to go to his house. Um, she's going to go to a public place, but she wants to have a private conversation. So I think what happens is she goes over, she uncovers his foot. You know, your feet get cold, you eventually wake up. He wakes up, he's startled, and he goes, wait, who is that? 
Um, the, the words here are kind of fun in uh, verse uh, 8 where it says, Then it happened in the middle of the night that the man startled and bent forward. In other words, you, you could translate it that he was twisting and he turned himself around going like, What's going on here? And, and Ruth uh, says and responds to his inquiry, Who are you? She says, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. And then she asks something really forward. So spread your wing over your maidservant for you are a kinsman redeemer. Like she, she doesn't like wait for, and how are you? And how are you? And are you having a good night? I don't know. You know she, she's right in there saying, I have a request to make of you. I have a request to make of you. And, and she's doing this at the urging of her mother-in-law. But this is a person whom she has gotten to know as well as a man of high moral character and standing. Not only that, um, Ruth is a lady whom Boaz has come to know as a lady of high moral character and standing. And what Boaz is being asked to do is to be a redeemer. The, the phrase in your Bible might read a kinsman redeemer. And, and she actually says this using a phrase from chapter 2 verse 12. She says, so spread your wing over your maidservant. So we need to look at a couple of things here. The first one is um, kinsman redeemer. Uh, the word in Hebrew is the word goel. Can you say goel? Goel, kinsman redeemer. This term refers both to a person responsible for a relative and to God in relationship to Israel. So if you go to do a word study on the word goel in Hebrew, you're going to find many times God is acting as a redeemer of Israel. But you're also going to find that there's going to be people who God will place in his stead, flesh and blood on earth, to act as a redeemer. And one of the places that you find that, uh, or, or the responsibilities of a goel, is Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 19. And one of the responsibilities is if someone has been murdered, there is a blood vengeance that should be uh, redeemed by someone who is a goel, a part of this person's family. Another place you can read about this phrase goel or this word is caring for destitute relatives. So in the Torah, in Leviticus 25, it says, hey, if, if you have relatives who are destitute, who are poor, who have nothing, you are to step in and to be a goel. Now, the interesting thing about this is that she ties this also with this phrase, so spread your wing over your maidservant. This is a phrase that, um, that Boaz used in a prior conversation with Ruth. And we can see that in Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. In Ruth chapter 2, um, Boaz in verse 11 uh, he has found favor, she has found favor in his eyes. And the reason she's found favor in his eyes is given in verse 11 of chapter 2. Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you forsook your father and your mother in the land of your birth, and you came to a people that you did not previously know. He says, May Yahweh fully repay your work. May your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. So what's important to know is that Boaz recognizes that Ruth, a Moabitess, has come to seek refuge under the wings of Yahweh. When Ruth comes to talk to Boaz, she comes with the request 
will you spread your wings over me? What she's asking is she's going back to the words that he priorly said, and I think she's saying, will you be God's gift to me and to my family to stand in as a kinsman redeemer? Now, it's interesting because what this kinsman redeemer is in the context is just someone who would care for those in their family who are, who are poor or who are widowed, who are destitute. But what she's asking him to do, in fact, one of the definitions of the spread your wing over me and one of the major Hebrew um, resources is an invitation to marriage. And, and so Boaz is... <laughs> He's stepping into not just uh, caring for one's destitute relatives. In fact, he's already been doing that in an unofficial capacity, right? He, he has come in and he has said to Ruth when he sees her gleaning, hey, make sure she's got a place to glean. Make sure that she has extra things over here. Make sure that her work is not as hard as it could be. Make sure that she is honored here in the midst all of the, the gatherers. And, and in fact, what he says about her in chapter 3, in verse 11, he says, All my people within the gates of the city know that you are an, a woman of excellence. She is asking, Boaz, will you be my Goel? Will you step in? But there's something else that he's going to step in to do, and that is to be her levir as well. Now, levir is a word that is related to this idea of leverite marriage. So Boaz could step in and just be a kinsman redeemer. He, he, he could just provide. But he ends up, spoiler alert, they end up getting married eventually. And he steps in as what is called a levir. A levir is one who... Um, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, um, who when a woman's husband would die and she had no sons, um, if there was a brother to her husband, that brother would be asked to stand in and to essentially be a, a person through whom offspring could be uh, procreated for the betterment of the family. Right? We see this in the story of Judah and Tamar. Uh, we see this a couple other places in the Old Testament. Um, what Boaz ends up doing is, is being um, asked, being solicited in the positive um, way of that phrase, um, to be a husband to her. Now, we don't know how old exactly Boaz is, except the text seems to indicate that he's quite a bit older because he says in this narrative that you have um, not gone after young, young men, whether rich or poor, and so it seems that he's perhaps older. We don't know whether he is widowed and has no offspring or whether he uh, was never married. Many people would suggest that he was probably never married. I think that's probably a good guess. But notice she asks, will you spread your wings over your maidservant for you're my kinsman redeemer or you are a kinsman redeemer. And he responds with this blessing of Yahweh. May you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. You have shown your last loving kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. So it seems that she could have perhaps been married to someone else within the tribe. There's some challenges that come with that. No one has to stand in as a levir here, but Boaz is saying, wow, you have incredibly honored me by saying, Will you be my redeemer? 
uh, he actually says it this way in verse 11. And notice what it says. He says, all that you say, I will do for you. And, and one scholar notes that this phrase, I will do for you, is the center of this whole chapter right here. In, in fact, Boaz's words in these couple of verses are the longest speech in all of the book of Ruth. And so he's saying, what you have said, I will do for you. Right? He, he's not just stepping in to care for Naomi. He's stepping in to care for Ruth. He's stepping in to care for the family line that preceded him. He says, for all my people within the gates of the city know that you are a woman of excellence. And then he gives a a qualifier here in verse 12. But now it is true that I am a kinsman redeemer. However, there is a kinsman redeemer closer than I. So he's a man of the text. He's a man who knows um, this is the proper way for this to be done in this setting. And in chapter 4, we're going to find he's going to have a conversation with this other kinsman redeemer. But the invitation here is for this woman of excellence and this man of high standing to be gathered together as husband and wife to further the family line, to protect the land that belonged to the family of Elimelech and Naomi and their sons. But the reason that he can step into this, the reason why I think he says yes to this is because he knows this lady's character. He knows this lady's character. Remember, the, the text has talked about her with the phrase Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth the Moabitess. It happens all over the text. And for the ancient Jewish person to be somehow uh, romantically or uh, legally bound to uh, a lady from Moab was not a kosher thing. Because the stories we have in the scripture are often tied with the women of Moab take uh, or become related to, uh, through marriage, uh, men of Israel, and they lead them off to worship other gods. But the reason he says yes, in part, is because he's saying yes to taking on the role and responsibility of being a kinsman redeemer, but also because he knows who she is in her character. All the, and not only he knows, but all my people know within the gates of the city that you are a woman of excellence. This uh, phrase I talked briefly about last week, it's the phrase eshet chayil. And it means translated woman of excellence. It's a phrase that's used in Proverbs 31 to describe a, a, a godly woman. Um, and so in the context of that phrase, you have all these things that are given, that she's a hard worker, that she is managing resources well, that, the, well, here, let me just read it. Uh, I won't read it all for you, but in Proverbs 31, at the very end of it, it says this. An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above pearls. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She deals bountifully with him for good and not evil all the days of her life. She searches for wool and flax and her works with her hands in delight. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it's still night. She gives food to her household and a portion to her young women. She makes plans for a field and buys it from the fruit of her 
hand, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and, all, and her hands hold fast to the spindle. She extends her hands to the poor and she stretches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of the snow for her household. <laughs> That's funny, since we live in the snow place. Um, f- never mind. Cracks me up. For all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits with the elders of the land. You get the sense of this is a strong woman. This is an intentional woman. This is a caring woman. This is a woman whose character precedes any form of beauty on the outside that she may have. In fact, you come down to the very end, and I have it up here. Well, here, I'll I'll give a couple more. Verse 26 of Proverbs 31 says, She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the instruction of loving kindness is on her tongue. That's the phrase chesed there. Um, She watches over the ways of her household. She does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her. As for her husband, he also praises her, saying, My daughters have done excellently, but you have gone above them all. But you come to this very, very end, and one of the keys, I think, to this idea of what it means to be a woman of excellence is what's listed in verse 30 here. Charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. Right? These are the words that describe the kind of woman that Ruth was. Because she's called an eshet chayil, and... The lady in view here of Proverbs 31 is also called an Eshet Chayil. The amazing thing is Ruth is a Moabitess from a different people, but she comes over to follow Yahweh. And and notice, Boaz's commitment here is made to Ruth. In other words, um, as he says something about her character, it's saying something in a time of the judges when people do what's right in their own eyes and there's no king in Israel, that here you find a woman of faith who's from Moab. She's an incredible woman from everything Boaz has given us here. Likewise, he is also an incredible God-fearing man. But what I love about this story uh, one of the many things I love about the story is this woman of noble character and this man of noble character is that God provides um, a way forward in redemption and how this could be carried out. But, but Boaz, though, is, is given this, this, this option, this opportunity. Will you take upon yourself covering me with your wings? And Boaz says to her, um, I will. All that you say, I will do for you. Because he knows his people know who she is. Boaz willingly takes upon himself the godly responsibility of being a Goel and stepping in as a Levir into the life of Ruth and subsequently for Naomi. Verse 12 tells us that Boaz recognizes he's not the only one who's able to redeem. In fact, in the line of redemption, he's not the closest. And so he's going to go in the proper order. He's going to go to the first person, and we'll have that conversation next week. But then Boaz tells her, lay down here until morning. And this is not a sexual reference in any way. It, It is a 
rest here until morning. But then it tells that she gets up before she could be recognized. She wants to avoid the scandal of a woman coming to a, um, a harvesting place, a threshing floor in the middle of the night. Uh, and Boaz also wants to care for her that way, so much so that he sends home, not just for her, but for Naomi as well, six measures of barley. So you can imagine she's taking whatever cloak she had, she's going up to Boaz, and Boaz is filling it with six measures of grain. She's not going home empty-handed. And and maybe that's in part because as she leaves, someone might see her and go, oh, she was getting grain, okay? She, She needed food. But Ruth actually gives us the best reason here because in verse 17, the six measures of barley he gave to me, uh, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty. Remember, we go back to chapter one and we find Naomi is a woman whose life is empty. Right? She, she had all the, all the things that might make her full. And as she lost all those earthly physical things in the course of a couple of verses in our text, she says, I went away full, God brought me back empty. But it's actually in her emptiness, God is meeting her with what she needs. Right? Sometimes emptiness is the best place to be because that's where God says, I know you don't have anything, but let me fill you up. Because what you really lack is you lack my power, my strength, my provision in your life. Naomi and Ruth begin to experience what it means to have their lives filled by God. But notice that God God uses people to fill other people's life in a way that only God could ordain. Um, Boaz is called kinsman redeemer. I told you that that name is often used or that that character reference is often used to describe God. But one of the things I love about the story is, is Boaz has the opportunity here. Will I step in and take on responsibility on behalf of God, not to be God, but on behalf of God to be this woman's kinsman redeemer? Ruth comes to him and she recognizes we, we need a redeemer and you're a godly man. And so as we kind of read the story, we have to think about it in terms of applying it to our life in a couple of of different ways. Um, As they wait for this uh, culmination of redemption, um, the way I phrased it in my notes here was, um, being an agent of redemption begins with your character. But, but, But think about it this way. God is always working in our life experiences. Uh, a couple chapters ago, I don't think Naomi, when she left Moab, had any idea that her daughter-in-law would glean at the house in the land of Boaz and that she'd be taken care of so well. I don't, I don't think she knew that in their lack, God would provide in a way that they probably never even guessed. She wants her to find rest in the text. It says rest. That rest can be both physical rest, that can be care but given by someone who is a covering over her. That, that word rest there in Hebrew can also have the idea of, of spiritual rest. And so God's not only provided someone to be a goel and provide food for them. Even more than that, God has provided someone to give them rest 
rest in a spiritual sense. So, someone to be a godly husband who would lead his family through the challenges of what it meant to live during a time of the judges where everyone does what is right in their own eyes and there is no king in Israel. God's story, God's story is, is hardly one that we can imagine many times. And maybe you can think about that in your own life. Th think back to a time where you're like, man, I never expected this to happen, but God met me here, right? Where, where, where circumstances, you're like, I, I couldn't have planned this any different. In fact, I went down this path thinking that I was going to end up here, and God ended me up here, but in that process, I experienced the chesed, the loving kindness, the, the, the grace of God in a way that I don't think I ever could have experienced it another way. Uh, about uh, 17 years ago, well, 17 years ago yesterday, my wife and I got married. And so we celebrated 17 years yesterday, and she's a very kind and patient woman to stay with me for 17 years. And um, we were in this process. It was really kind of crazy because... Um, so 17 years ago, Friday night, this last Friday night, we were at our, we were at our um, rehearsal dinner at my parents' house after the wedding rehearsal, and we literally had no idea where we were going to live when we came back from our honeymoon. That's how planned out we were. We, we were seeking what God wanted for us. We knew we were probably moving somewhere, so we didn't set up a place to live. We knew we could always live at mom and dad's for a short period of time, but who as a newlywed wants to do that? Um, and it literally, our pastor came up to us on, um, on our, um, our, during our rehearsal dinner, and he said, hey, my wife and I are going to be out of town uh, for the entire month of July. Would you watch our house? And we said, yes, we're there. <laughs> Whatever you want. Lawn mode? Sure. Uh, clean, clean up everything? Absolutely. Whatever. It doesn't matter. We're still trying to figure out this whole thing. Now, we were probably young and just not thinking through all these steps. You know, life had been one thing after another after another. And we knew that there was a bunch of changes. We didn't know where we, we were going to end up. And God in his grace said, you need a place to live in nine days when you get back? And we're like, yes, please. And so we, we, we stepped into that opportunity, which led to another opportunity, which led to another opportunity. We look back on those first three months of our marriage, and sometimes I wonder, man, how did we make it? Like, I worked at a pizza shop. My wife worked at a chiropractor. We're like, how do we pay the bills? We don't know. But God is a gracious God. And he meets us in ways we can't even begin to expect. His, his thinking and his seeking, his purposes are so unfathomable to me that if I were to try to write that story, I couldn't write that story myself. I, I might try to manage it and I might try to work it. And, and we were working hard and we were seeking diligently where God wanted us. It, there, there was no lack of effort on our end, but we're just going... God, we, we just don't know what to do. And God just kept dropping things in our lap, including a phone call from Pastor Mike Ferris on our honeymoon going like, hey, you want to have a conversation about coming up to Zeal, Michigan? I went, I don't know where Zeal, Michigan is. Do you know? No, we didn't know where it was. We just knew it was a state up north that we didn't go to very often because y'all have a football team that we don't care for too much. Sorry, for those of you who don't know, I'm originally from Ohio, so don't hold it against me, please. My point is this. God is always working in our life experiences. And maybe you're walking through a really, really challenging season right now and you're going, God, where are you? Guess what? He's right there. He's got it. 
In fact, Jesus says it this way um, in Matthew chapter 6. I love this, I love this verse where, where he's talking about, why do you worry? Why do you have all this anxiety? Um, don't you know, like, you're here today, you're gone tomorrow. Don't you know that your father knows what you need even before you ask him? He, he says, I want you to do this. I want you to seek first my kingdom. I want you to seek first my righteousness. Let that be the guiding thing of your life. Everything else will be taken care of. Seek God. Seek his will. Seek his path. And some of you here today are like, how do I know what God's will or what God's path is? Well, it begins with seeking to know God himself. You, you cannot know God's will apart from knowing God himself. And friends, uh, the amazing thing about life in Jesus is it's a gift, but it's a walk as well. Some of us here today, we need to focus our hearts and our minds and our attention and our focus on seeking to know the God who has given his word to us. The, the psalmist writes, I have I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Knowing what God cares about, knowing what God has said is so important for your walk with God. It, it, doesn't, determine your, um, it doesn't determine your standing before God as his son or daughter. Like the more Bible th that you know doesn't make you more loved than you were at the moment you became a follower of Jesus, right? Or, or even the moment before that because God says that he loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. Like you were worth Jesus to God. He sent his son for you. But this process of then knowing God is the invitation to be like, all right, God, will you teach me? And then as we understand and as we study, the other part of the process of knowing God and walking in his ways is saying, all right, God, you told me to do that. All right, I want to walk in faithfulness. I want to forgive the way that you have forgiven me, God. I want, I want to love the unlovely the way that you love them. And what you'll find is that first Christ goes from being your savior, right? The one who saves you, the one who redeems you, the one who, who came and he died and he rose again to cover and to cleanse you from your sin. He goes from being Christ your savior to being Christ your Lord, right? Savior. Lord comes next and it comes right after that. For Christ to be your Lord, it means that he becomes first in every bit of your life. And his word and his desires become what should drive us, not to earn anything, but because we want to live as his ambassadors here on this earth. And so, so, so we want to live in fellowship with him and the way we do that is say, all right, God, how are we going to walk this out? So God becomes your Lord where everything becomes, all right, Lord, what do I do here? My money is yours, my house is yours, my time is yours, my family is yours. That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord of your life. Um, so Christ goes from being your Savior to your Lord to being your life. And all this happens like in a simultaneous thing, right? This isn't stages of your Christian life, although you are growing in each one of these stages simultaneously. For Christ to be your life, Colossians chapter 3, and when Christ who is your life is revealed, you will also be revealed with him in glory. For Christ to be your life means that you're saying, all right, God, I know what you've said. I, well, I know what you've done to save me. I know what you have said you want me to be about. Now, God, I can't walk in the truth of your word in my own strength. For Christ to be your life today means to say, oh, God, you want me to forgive them? I don't even like them. How am I going to forgive them? God, it's going to have to be you working through me 
And I love the way Paul puts it in Philippians. Uh, he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The good works that God has ordained and destined for you to walk in are the things in which he has given you his blessing, his power, his strength to walk in. Some of us here today, though, we need, we need to take our eyes off of all the other things that, that surround us and say, all right, God, my eyes are here. I, I, I heard a pastor recently say, um, the amazing thing, like, like the adversary, the devil has a really easy job in that all he has to do is distract us in any direction other than Jesus. God has one goal. Eyes up here. Follow me. And I don't know about you, but like sometimes distraction is my biggest enemy because I can be distracted by good things that get me off the mark of what God has called me to do and where God has called me to be faithful. Savior, Lord, life. That's one application. Second application uh, that I want to make from this is godly character matters. Godly character matters. It, it, it really does. We see this in the story. Character, though, is often one of the last things we look for in people. And let me just say this, because this is kind of like a marriage story. Ladies, don't settle for a guy who does not have godly character. Don't do it. Right? Now, if you're already married and you want to see your husband to continue to grow in godly character, that's a different conversation about how you give him over to God and how you support him and how you love him and how you affirm him and how you have real good, honest conversations about what it means to follow the Lord. But ladies, if you're not married, seek, know this, seek a man with godly character. But I'm also going to say this, gentlemen, seek a young lady if you're looking towards marriage, with godly character, right? They both matter. They both matter. It, it matters. Don't settle for someone whose character is not solid. It does not mean that they're perfect, but whose character is solid. By God's grace, seek to be men and women of God whose primary devotion is the Lord. And that's how you'll know whether or not their character is solid. Is what they pursue first and most God? Right? Not going to be perfect, but are they a seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? If they're that kind of a person, the character will follow that volitional decision. Um, last thing. I want to give uh, for application to us. Um, wings of refuge are first found in God and secondarily found in others. We, we see in the story that Boaz says, we talked about this, he says, may you find, Ruth, the wings of God over you. She had to go to God first. Boaz couldn't be her redeemer more than God, right? But, Wings of, God are or wings of refuge are found in God first, but they're found secondarily in others. What Boaz is invited to is, will you be wings of refuge here on this earth that stand in and represent what God wants to do in and through us? So the point is this. Always find your refuge and your redemption in God. But God will call each one of us to act as a redeemer on behalf of people. Maybe not in this sense. But he may ask you as a boss to come in and, and to have 
important conversations with those whom you work with. Or, or he might ask you as a parent to step in and, and to learn what it means to be a, a redeemer for your son or for your daughter. He's going to ask you to be the hands and feet of Jesus, is my point. Sometimes we say, all right, God, you're just going to have to do it. The other question we should be asking is, God, how do you want me to participate in this process? And that participation may be, I want you to stay on your knees and I want you to pray. But that participation may be, I want you to go and I want you to speak a word of encouragement to someone who is down. Or you see that there is a physical need in this family. I want you to go and I want you to give this with a generous, glad heart. Or it may be you are called by God to go have a, 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 a relational conversation with someone and that's just a real challenge for you. But God says, I want you to go and I want you to affirm. No one can have too many encouragers, one of my former mentors used to say. And I want you to go, I want you to affirm and I want you to encourage. How does God want you and me to be physical hands and feet of Jesus to our world because when we've experienced redemption the natural overflow of that should be we want to help other people experience redemption and they will often take their cue from how we are living here in our relationship with God but how we are living outward our relationship with God one of the great pictures um, of this is adoption Right? I, I know many people in our church community here have engaged in adopting a child. And if, and if you haven't, that's absolutely fine. Uh, of, of the people whom I have talked to, th they typically say, we just sense God saying, we want you to step into this. And as they stepped into it, by the way, uh, if you don't know, that's not usually an easy thing. You go from waiting on the government or waiting on a country to clear all the paperwork, the financial cost of that, all the way to now you're raising a kid as your own in your home. You, you're being their kinsman redeemer. Um, but that comes with struggle and that comes with challenge. A and it may be that some of the harder challenges in raising a, a kid of any age, of any background, or not the moment you get them, but it's the journey of living life with them because you're constantly pointing them back to how Christ needs to meet their needs. And that leaves you on your knees a lot of the time because as great of a parent you may be, there's a spiritual work that only God can do in the life of a young person. I love this picture of adoption because it, it, it it says, I am with you always. And, and that's what Boaz is doing here. He's not saying to Ruth, I'm just going to give you food for the next week. But I will be your redeemer and I will be here. God help me. And, and it may be here today that as you go out into your week, God is going to invite you into an act of redemption, a, re a redemptive action in this world. The way you engage in that is saying, God, let your life live through me so that they see that there is a God who cares and who loves and who knows them. But God may call you to hard stuff this week, but know he is with you. He is your strength. He is your shield. He is your peace. He is your life in every 
lack that you feel, God is more than able to supply exactly what you need to follow his will and to follow his word. Pray with me, please. God, I thank you for the story of betrothal and marriage here found in the book of Ruth. Um, And God, how that pictures for us how you sent your son, your only son, the one whom you love, to be our redeemer. True redemption, Lord, is found in you and in you alone. And yet, God, you invite us in this journey to be your hands and to be your feet, to, to, to do the good works that you have prepared for us to do. And, and God, we want to just remind ourselves that it's not through doing good works that we find our, our, our worth and our value. It's through being your child. But God, that as your children, you call us to do good works. And you call us to be people who honor you and people who walk after you in a time of the judges where people do what is right in their own eyes and there is no king in Israel. And so God, we, we come to you in dependence today. We need you. God, we, we can't act as goels here on this earth, as agents of redemption without your power, without your source of blessing and strength. Lord, reveal to us at the proper times how you would have us do that. And Lord, may may our character be exhibited by the working of Christ in our life because you are our life. We thank you, God, for meeting all of our needs today. We thank you for your gracious provision of love and mercy and grace. We thank you, God, um, for the gift of community. We thank you, God, for dads today and for how they step into our lives in so many ways to be hands and feet of Jesus. And Lord, even if we've come from a, a, a an upbringing where Maybe we don't have a great relationship with our dad or, or maybe there's some, some sin there, some brokenness there. Would you lead and guide us in what it means to forgive? Would you lead and guide us what it means to live at peace as far as it is possible with us, with all people? Um, Lord, would you continue? We, we thank you, God, for continuing to be all that we need today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.